0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ.
1: Greetings, everyone. Wow, got quite a full house. Nice to see everyone. It's me again, part three out of four. We're on redemption.
0: Yay!
1: After the fall, we have to have something lifting us up. I didn't leave us hopeless in the last message, but anyway, we have more hope today, and um, it's it's the big one. It's the crux of the matter, so to speak. I'm going to take my glasses off because I can see better. Actually, maybe I'll just stand back a little bit. Yeah, that's okay. So, we've had creation, we've had the fall. And now we're at redemption, which is where we all get lifted back up out of the the dirt and the crud and the muck that we put ourselves into. The fall left us in a state of separation that you could break up into four parts, which I also touched on last time. Um, One of them is vertical. It's the separation between God and humanity. The other three are horizontal. They're all on our level down here. Um, So person to person, person from person, separate. Each person from him or herself, also separate. Um, And people from nature, separate. These are the ways in which we are separated by falling. And maybe it's no surprise that the horizontal and the vertical make a, make a cross. And there might have been other things, other ways that Jesus died, but the cross is central to his death, and it is central to our faith. And we'll be getting into that a little bit today. Um, I didn't really know what was going to emerge when I started writing this sermon, and that sign- sometimes happens when I write, um, One of the things I'm writing slowly is a collection of uh, fantastic short stories that are based in Svaneti. And sometimes the characters emerge as I'm writing, which if any of you are writers can relate to, especially if you're writing fiction, you may not know where it's going to go when you start. And that that can be an exciting thing. Um, It's not like that with God. When God creates, he not only... It might not be right to say that God knows the future. I, I prefer to say that he's he 's already at the future, so he sees the the perfection of what He has made, whereas we don't because we 're living in a in a messed up world, and we ourselves are, are messed up and all, all of creation, as I said last time, is groaning, and we are groaning too inwardly or outwardly for the final redemption of our bodies so but as a writer, um, as someone who is not perfect and who is inside time. I don't always know where the writing is going to go, so that that can be exciting. And even even with a thing like preaching, sometimes I don't know where, but I trust God to guide and here we are. Um, I've had the experience a couple of times as an artist, uh, specifically um, with these two pieces I'll talk about. They were sculptures. Um, I had a big lump of raw porcelain clay that you can mold, like plasticine. And I was chucking it from hand to hand on my canvas-covered uh, clay table. And very strongly, it was like the piece said to me a couple of times, stop, I'm finished. And I had to step back and say, okay. Um, again, this is not something that God hears from us. God doesn't, or if he does, we, we can't be right about it. God knows what we need to be finished. We can never tell God and, and him say, okay, I hear you. That's up to God. But with us as creators, with us as artists of whatever medium, sometimes the piece will tell you, stop, I'm done. Um, I got a couple of slides to show what pieces I'm talking about. Um, this, this one um, is called my Japanese piece. Um, I don't have it in the round to show you, I'm afraid, but um, somehow it, it sums up... A Japanese aesthetic for me, and when I was much younger, one of my dreams was to be an apprentice to a Japanese potter. <laughs> I just I love the aesthetic of Japanese art, and this for me is my homage to that. Um, saying that I really, really love Japanese art, so that's that's just it's a vase called Japanese Peace. Next one. Um, Can anyone see a form in that? What would you see? Um, This one, maybe if I name it, then you'll see it. This one is called Madonna and Child. Does that that make sense? Okay, again, I was just chucking, and this was a 22-pound or 10-kilogram lump of, of porcelain that I was throwing around, and it said, stop, and I stopped. And this one is a vindication piece for me because I did not get accepted into the art college in Canada that I applied for, the best one in the country, the Alberta College of Art, um, as an 18-year-old still in high school. But um, when I was part of the Sculptors Association of my province, I was a founding member of it in 1986, um, eventually we had someone come from the Alberta College of Art to... Our little association and critique our work as sculptors, and um, a lot of the other people lived right in the city of Edmonton. I lived outside. I didn't have a whole lot of contact with them, and he actually said that to the to the others as he was critiquing piece by piece. A lot of your work is kind of derivative of each other, and it's it's a little bit too samey. But mine, he said, okay. Did you just do this with your clay? And I said, yeah. And he said, that's fine. I like it. It works. And I got I, inside. I was going, yay, someone from the Alberta College of Art liked something that I did. Good. OK. But anyway, that's that's Madonna and Child. Um, it, um, it's in its raw, dried porcelain form. And then when I fired it the first time, it got some big cracks in it. And you have to fire porcelain twice. And if I cracked, if I'd fired it the second time at the really high temperature, it probably would have exploded. So I had to leave it um, not high-fired, as, as we call it. But anyway, I've got the sculpture. One day I'll bring it back to, uh, to Georgia and have it at home at last. In the, in the, in, in the meantime, it, it's waiting for me back there. So that piece also said, stop. And I said, okay, I hear you. With God, as, as we can appreciate, it's not like that. And there are even some examples of pottery and potter in Scripture. So I want to read um, a couple of those that are in the book of Isaiah. Can we have uh, the first of our texts, please? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. Better hope not. Because he better know what he's doing. What's the, what's the clay compared to the potter? And then we get it right later on in Isaiah. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Can you, can you say that out loud, nice and loud? We are all the work of your hand. One, two, three. We are all the work of your hand. Amen. He will, however, finish us. This is our great hope. That's just something I added. God will finish us. Clay needs to be centered. It needs to be fired in a very intense process. There's a whole lot of spiritual lessons there that might end up coming into a book, I hope, one day. But uh, I love these images of pottery and potter in Scripture. As I've said, we're talking about redemption. And I want us to also read... Um, a couple of the main scriptures. We're not going to go through a whole long scripture reading of the crucifixion and the resurrection, but we will read them um, now. So let's have uh, John 1, 17 to 18, please. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. And as we know from what we can read about the Roman process of crucifixion, it was very long, very agonizing. Um, It was just a a, a terrible way to die because it was so slow and painful and humiliating. This is Jesus' death for us. But as we know, the story doesn't end there. Let's have the next one, please. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. I love this process, the way that it's described of he was first, then he was first, then he, w- he stopped and waited, and then he went in, and that's kind of how it was. What do I do? What do I do? Do I hesitate? Do I go in? And that's that's how it's recorded in uh, in, in the Gospel of John. So we have this cross in art and philosophy. Um, it's the irony of a slow, tortured death, but at the same time, beautiful, beautified. Um, it's it's depicted. It's been depicted as the central element of our faith for millennia. So what if we replace the cross with some other instruments of torture that we have in history? Let's have one of those, please. Can you imagine if that was the symbol of our faith? Not just something to quickly kill yourself with or be killed with, but a lynching noose where your death might take a long, long time. Or, next one. You know what that is? There's a famous uh, heavy metal group that's named after that iron maiden that is an iron maiden you got locked inside that and the spikes would would pierce you and you'd be stuck like that for a very long time what if what if that was the thing that we wore around our neck instead of this how would that be would that be weird well if we think about it now it would be very very strange but you know we've been wearing this for 2000 years and putting it in our homes and putting it in our churches and putting it all over georgia for people to see for for you know 2000 years so it's not that strange to us but this is this was a, an instrument of torture this was this is what that was it was a wooden thing that people died on and it took usually 2 or 3 days jesus you could say was fortunate or blessed in that way that his end came much sooner than it should have another one there's the rack in which you were st- slowly stretched until your joints popped out Another way of of killing ourselves. Can you imagine wearing that around your neck? Or having that in your home? That would be so weird, right? But here we are. We have the cross instead. This is our faith. Sometimes maybe we can say, no wonder people think about us. Yeah. Why? Why do you have that? But because it's not the end of the story. is maybe one thing we can say. So... This death and this resurrection were to save us from our sins, to, to atone, to take the place for our sins, and to defeat death, and to make a mockery of death, and then for Jesus to rise in a historic moment which echoes through all of history and through the life of each one of us. It is echoing, and the ripples aren't getting lower, getting smaller, they're getting bigger as time goes on. And this should be, can be, is the inspiration for a lifetime of art and exploration and proclamation, this cross and this resurrection. And he calls us to be co-creators with him, but in more than art. So how has the cross and the resurrection, how have they impacted art? Well, I can look at my own life as an artist and, and give you some examples of that. I had a, um, one of my very fruitful creative times was when I was living in Russia in the city of St. Petersburg in the 1990s. Uh, next slide, please. I had two roommates in a, in a two-story, or two flatmates in a two-story flat, and we even made a commemorative mug of the three of us uh, together with the, with the colors of the Russian flag as our, as our clothes. And I'm still in touch with these guys, and they're very good friends. The one in the middle is from the Netherlands, and he, he had a pipe organ in, in his house when he was growing up. And he once went into the big cathedral in Budapest, in Hungary, and sat down and started playing the pipe organ. And no one said to him, stop, because he was too good. And the other guy, Mike, um, the one in the middle, his name is Gertian. And the one on the end is Mike, and he grew up just outside Liverpool in, in the UK. And um, he once went into one of the best hotels in St. Petersburg, the um, Astoria Hotel, and it has a big restaurant. And he sat down during lunch and started playing the grand piano. And again, no one said to him, stop, because he was that good. And once I gave Mike the words to a song that I had written, but I'm, I'm not any, really any good so far as a, as a writer of music, just of words. But I'd been writing song lyrics for a long, long time most of them with a, with a Christian theme. And I gave Mike um, the lyrics to one of my songs, and about half an hour later, he came down with his guitar and started playing the song. And I said, whoa, finally, finally, someone gets me. And from then on, for the next uh, about seven years, we wrote 80 songs together. And we performed them at um, student events that were organized by IFES, the the student uh, ministry, as outreaches in Saint Petersburg. Um, once in my home church in the UK, we we had a concert, and you know we, we would sing for a couple of hours. Me doing most of the vocals, him sometimes doing the um, the harmonies. And um, um, I I wouldn't call myself a fantastic singer, but hey, it was a great time, and and. We just we, we went for it and eighty songs later there we were and almost all of those are recorded just in a in a with a very simple little boom box, you know. But I, I have all these digital recordings that I I transferred from those. Um, so this was this was a, an incredible time exploring faith and exploring living in Russia through song. Once I can remember I even wrote a song during the day, and Mike was away in another part of the city, and he was writing music. And we came together that evening, and there was a piano in our, in our apartment. And I showed him the words, and he sat down, and he'd, he already had the music. And I just cried, because it was a beautiful, touching song that I really felt, and he had this music for it that was just... Mwah. So, yeah. Couldn't ask for anything better about this, this kind of collaboration. It was, it was fantastic. So... Also, the, the three of us, um, roommates, had very different viewpoints about art, even though we were all believers. Um, so Gertian, the, the Dutch guy, his biggest concern in art was the moral content. Mike was most taken by the emotional content. So Mike could be driving down the road in, in the UK, listening to Radiohead or Oasis or Schubert or whoever, his, his range was very wide, his, his range of taste. And if it, if it got to him too much, he would have to pull over, because the emotion was too much for him, and he, he felt music so much. Um, and for me, it was the, the technical abilities of the musicians. We were mostly discussing our different ways of looking at, at music. Um, so for me, for example, Eagles, wow, those guys are such a tight band. You know, I'm not that concerned with what they're singing about, as long as it's not really outrageous. And most of what the Eagles sang, to be, to be frank, I would say wasn't outrageous, but the, the musical quality of these guys was just unbelievable. So tight. And you hear it e- even in their, in their live concerts. So we always had these very fruitful debates, the three of us, about, um, about music and the way that we looked at music and about art and philosophy. And we would go to the Hermitage, um, the, one of the biggest art museums in the world, 400 rooms, and it's a palace. And um, one of my favorite pieces, and only mine, um, that's in the Hermitage. Let's have that next slide, please. So that is Rembrandt painting. Anyone guess what that is about? That's the prodigal son, absolutely, coming home to his father and being received. And OK, yeah, there's medieval elements in that, but whatever. It's, it's a magnificent painting. And the Hermitage has the original. Go and see it. I urge you. Right, Dennis? Yeah, good stuff. So the Hermitage was full of this magnificent art, and you could see over the centuries that so much of the theme of the art was from scripture, and it was about faith. Not all of it in the whole museum, but a lot of it was. So I want to um, to show you. I want to share with you a song which Mike and I wrote from a vision which I had in my church in Canada when I was, um, let's see, I would have been about twenty-one years old. Of Jesus on the cross, and um, so we had the lyrics and uh, me singing this song. And I hope it's going to be loud enough. You might have to turn up the volume a bit. So can we uh, can we play the song, please, if it's going to be loud enough?
0: so Into you. Do you see in the darkness Christ still shining through A fly buzzing around You don't have no strength to twitch It seems such an awful detail In the midst of agony Amen it- In the crowd, the irony of search of Christian mm-hmm. is how the church would react and if I were to thus portray the naked new, and crunchy fact to see snow white plaster image, a death light slap in the face, the Son of God dying and abandoned before the whole to the grave. Adventures, our dresses and The to Some love cries out for an answer. It dare not be ignored. Cross purposes, when you're coming, life from death, once more. Teach me to live across purposes. Get
1: to myself all for you, lover of God and the servant, Jesus, what else could I do? Thank you. You should fade that out. So, I don't know, it's just what I saw, it's what I saw. You might not Sing in church every Sunday, blood on our carpets and benches, blood on our dresses and suits, but here we are it It really broke me that vision it was It was so powerful, and um, I maybe a lot of us have seen once, maybe not more than once, the film by Mel Gibson, um, The Passion of the Christ. Could we have that next slide? Um, this is maybe the the truest depiction to date of what it was like, um, and, except he was naked. And uh, I kind of realized that if I was to make a sculpture of this, I had an idea, make a life-size sculpture of Jesus on the cross, but no church would, would display it. It would be too awful. But anyway, here we are at the cross. Um, there, there, there's a, a wonderful word in German that we borrowed into English. I think it's one of our best uh, borrowings. It's the word "kitsch." Kitsch is like what is shallow and crass and not deep at all. Maybe if, um, from an American cultural context, you might think of daytime soap operas. There's a perfect example of kitsch, but there's there's lots of examples in every medium you can think of. Um, kitsch. It's it's like it's doesn't even doesn't even count. It's not even worth it. It's not. Did I waste half an hour of my life for that, or you know whatever? It's it's so meaningless. Our art should be should have meaning, because we have deep things that we know and deep things that we go through and deep things to say. That is what I want to say with this. That forget the kitsch. Um, Bart sent me an article about a famous uh, American painter. Well, it could be any nationality. It doesn't matter. But he paints these uh, cutesy scenes that are, in some way, they're beautiful um, and they're they're perfectly lit and they're they're kind of magical. But his aesthetic, his stated aesthetic, is also that he's not writing about a fallen world. He's writing about kind of like what if, but this is our reality. Our reality is a fallen world, and we. Sometimes we might flinch from that and say it's too much or think that it's too much, but it's the world that we live in and it's the people that we are is fallen. But thank God we're not just fallen. We can accept the lifting up of ourselves by Jesus. And we should be portraying that as our message of hope. Whatever form of art or life or communication we have, so, I'm not just talking to artists here, but to every single one of us. We all have a proclamation. And the pro- proclamation might start with the bad news, but it doesn't end there. We can be lifted up. We can allow ourselves to be lifted up. Leo has been having some talks with me about uh, me as an artist. And he asked me a question. Um, I'd, I'd, been, I'd spent a bit of time in Svaneti recently going to the funerals of two young men in our village who were murdered. And um, it was a horrible, difficult, miserable, awful, screaming rage of a time, as you can perhaps imagine, perhaps not. Um, And I wrote about it in the paper, um, how I I kind of let God pull me out of that. A couple of things, obviously, was the, the big one would be prayer. You know, I prayed, God, I don't want to be stuck in this in this awfulness of what's happened in our village and the way that it impacts me. I I knew these men and their families. Um, But aside from that, I just renewed my friendship with the village. Lali and I have been out of our village now for a couple of months, spending winter here. And I I walked around taking photographs. And um, so I wasn't I wasn't photographing what I felt, but I was letting the beauty of the nature around me lift me up and letting, letting God use that beauty, which I see everywhere, to lift me up. If beauty is in the eye of the beholder, you can take the beauty with you wherever you go. And that's how it was for me. I, I, I let the surroundings and the beauty that I saw pull me out of this despair and this rage and this hopelessness that these families were going through. And if ever you, ever, any of you have ever been to a Georgian Georgia funeral... They are not silent. <laughs> they are full of anguish expressed very loudly. And the roaring of the brother of one of these dead men is something that I hope to never hear again in my life. It is just awful. But God let me come out of that with beauty. And beauty restored my soul in the same village where these murders happened. So I go back to art And I make art to find joy. If I'm writing, though, I might write out what I'm feeling and get it out of me that way. But in photography, I use the beauty that I see everywhere to lift me up. Thank God for that. Um, If you remember last time, I also spoke about the condition of the universe that i mentioned again today. Groaning. The universe and we are groaning together. For what? For the redemption of our bodies. Um, Our spirits have been redeemed already. Our souls are being redeemed through time. And our bodies are still falling apart and getting old and getting sick and weak and all that stuff. And sometimes we die. But we are waiting along with all creation for the redemption of our bodies. And this is our hope. Every one of the messages that I'm giving in this series of four, I I want to weave through that message hope. Because it's there. And without hope, we are, of course, hopeless. Let's not be there. We are not there. We have hope to give always in every situation. I want to say for us that we need to be real. Our art needs to be real. Our lives need to be real and to express the human condition. There's a, um, one phrase about written fiction that's called true fiction. And it doesn't mean that, that the fiction is actually telling the truth. It might be something that, that never happened and, and that's why it's fiction. But it resonates with each one of us who read it or who hear it, because we, we say to ourselves, yeah, I could see myself or I could see that person being like that in that situation. So in that sense, the fiction that, that we read or hear is true, because it re- we can relate to it. But if, if you read something that, 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 that makes you think, what is this? These people are so shallow, or this, this is not how how a, a normal person as I imagine people would, would react or what they would say or what they would do in that situation. I it doesn't touch me. It doesn't I don't I, I don't get it. You know, that that is not who we should be as people. We we need to be real because we have real truth, real propositional truth to share to people up uh, with people about a real event that happened in history. Right? It happened and it's still echoing. All the time, and the echoes are getting bigger, not smaller. One more passage I'd like us to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, in which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not only do we do do art, but we are art. Every single one of us, doesn't matter how you feel about yourself, when you look in the mirror, or when you consider your mind, and the ways that you've fallen, We're God's art. We're God's sculpture, living and awaiting redemption. And we're going to be redeemed one day. That is our great hope. So take that with you. Each one of you is created by God and worthy of God. God has chased after us. And that's that's a scriptural truth. He has chased after us, even though we are fallen, one of the things he asked one of its his prophets to do in the Old Testament was to take up with a prostitute. Some of the prophets had some very strange instructions from God. This guy was supposed to take up with a prostitute and live with her, and it was not a pretty story. But the prophet was, was representing God, and the prostitute was us, sad to say. If you look at pop music, some of which is... Profound and some of which is pretty shallow. It is full of this longing, especially when it's love songs. It's full of the longing that people have for each other. And as in the Song of Solomon, you can see that either on one level as a pure romantic relationship between a king and his queen, a husband and his wife, but you can also see it as God's longing for us, as the lover towards the beloved. And here is a crazy example of that. Um, can we have the MP4 file, please? And I don't care what you think about the song, but whatever. Just listen, give it, and give it a think. Wait, we need sound, sound. Please don't make me sing this one as well, because I will. But hang on, we had it before, we can get it again. (laughs) Some of you are probably thinking, I know where that comes from. (laughs) Is it because of me? Do I need to switch off?
0: Hang on. Baby, can't you see, there's nothing else for me to do I'm hopelessly devoted to you
1: Are we on? We're on. So who would dare to show something like that in a sermon? Well, (laughs) but I ask you this, does it not fit? Can you see the longing that's there? Okay, it's God in a nightgown with blonde hair, but she has been rejected and she wants, she wants. And she's hopelessly devoted. People, that is where God has been with us. He's made himself hopelessly devoted to us. And he can't look away. Isn't that that amazing? You know, when we think about ourselves and how useless and hopeless we sometimes are and feel. um, And yet, and yet, God longs for us, and God wants us. Wow. I I hope you feel the intensity of that, you know, from a kitschy song from Greece, because it's a gift. That music and those words and that singer are a gift. God gifted them to say something in a worldly way that, that actually touches us if we let it. And it, it touches me, so be touched. And dare to fall in love with God who wants to fall in love with you. Dare that. Dare to say to the world, God is hopelessly devoted to you. You know, when when you feel when you feel worthless, God says, You I I change you, I transform you, I lift you up, and I want you. I want you, and I'm making you into something beautiful. Take that and say it. Say it to people who need to hear it and say it to yourself as well.
0: Thank you. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.